As you think about the environment today, particularly from a third-party risk management perspective, what would be two or three things you absolutely want to make sure risk leaders are paying attention to? I, well, first and foremost, I talked about this this morning. Um, there's a big difference between risk and compliance. And I, and I feel that if you're in a risk role and you're running a compliance function, that you're missing an opportunity to provide value back to your customers. And customers typically either third parties or they could be um, uh, core customers. They could also be business owners of a, of a certain relationship. Um, you know, in third-party risk functions that operate more like compliance, they're talking about things like I have X number of assessments to get through and I, I'm looking at cycle times and operational metrics and I got to get it done. Um, and then once the assessment's done, you have the issues and the issues have to be managed. And, you know, you're running that methodical operational function of, you know, if I'm safe with a regulator and I'm safe with internal audit and I've done my things, like we're done. Um, but that's not effectively managing risk. It's managing yeah. activity. And I think first and foremost, understanding, again, getting uncomfortable and saying, here's where our appetite exists. I mean, it requires you to, to, to evaluate things that are not naturally numerical in, into numerical models, right? How, how do you say cyber risk is from a zero to a hundred? You know, what are the characteristics of a hundred? What are the characteristics of something that might be a 75? Okay. Is the 75 medium risk? Is it still high risk, right? Is it on the yeah. low end of the spectrum? And, and where does that exist? And, you know, if that risk maintains itself, even with the issues involved above a certain appetite, why should we be messing around with the issues? I mean, if they're acceptable, be acceptable. You know, yeah. we find that far too often there's issues where um, it requires excessive levels of management to, to, you know, to report on and to approve and to work with issues when in the grand scheme of things, if it's within an appetite, you know, remove the noise. So um, I think organizations that can get more comfortable with using data, um, certainly uh, to be able to set appetites, normalizing and, and, and uh, quantifying risk. Um, and again, that, that's hard. Like it's not market risk. It's not liquidity risk. It's not credit risk. It's cyber. It's resiliency. It's, it's an art form uh, in many cases. Um, and there's not standardized models like there are with credit risk. So you kind of have to build those models yourself. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. I think second is looking at enterprise critical type of relationships and making sure that they have differentiation within the organization. Um, and making sure that you follow the data, especially customer data, because there's additional privacy requirements and, and things like that. Um, but making sure you follow the data and follow the dependency. Um, in, in New York, I don't know, the, the, maybe it's 15 years ago, there used to be this um, uh, this commercial that would come on and it would say, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Um, I'm used to put my kids to bed at eight o'clock, so I, I hope I know where they are at 10. <laughs> but, you know, I, I felt the same thing about data. You know, it, it's it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your data is? And, and I know most organizations, if you went to like a chief operating officer, a chief risk officer and said, do you know where all your data is? That would be an uncomfortable question to ask them um, because it's I think so. You know, I think we have the right the right things. Um, I remember uh, about 10 years ago, taking an organization through. Um, a number of activities to follow data as far as it would go. Third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties, in some cases, sixth parties. Um, I've yet to see a seventh party, but feel free to prove me wrong. 
Um, <laughs> but we traced the data as far as it would go. And we, we, we learned two interesting things. We learned that about half of the, third, the fourth and fifth and sixth parties that we saw in the, the ecosystem were already third parties to the organization. We also saw about 5% of those relationships were using that data in ways that they were not contractually able to use those data. So they were trying to like normalize it and use it for marketing or use it for other types of analysis so they could be better positioned in the market um, and, and really making sure that the organizations know how they can treat your data, especially customer data. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say the, the third thing is lean in to learn about events that are happening now. Um, COVID, conflict in Ukraine, um, just the geopolitical environment in general. Risk is not just cyber. Risk is cyber, it's resiliency, it's compliance and ethics. Um, you know, it's geopolitical, it's location. Uh, the number of organizations that I see that just have no idea how they manage any degree of location risk is just stunning. Um, and I, I know you and I've had this conversation at length before, but, you know, those risk factors matter. And um, I think once you get your arms around each of those individual pieces, kind of like layers, you know, you, you have to dive back down into and, and look at those things, because there were a lot of people, um, you know, when that ship was uh, was stuck uh, in the Middle East, that that had some significant issues with supply chain. Um, yeah. During COVID, yeah. when we shut everything down and people were not able to go into offices, you know, call centers, in some cases, there were not fail safes so people could work remotely. And when the government was restricting any ability to go into an office, you have immediate disruption. Um, you know, there, were, there was one uh, financial services organization that was only able to field 30% of their calls inbound. Um, there was yeah. another one that realized when, when they started to just inventory all those points of failure, that they had 108 different call centers and they had no idea how it had gotten that complex. And, you know, they've since started to consolidate that back down. But all of these stress factors on an environment provide for an opportunity for us to learn and do something different. Um, and if we're not embracing that chaos and, and change so that we can be more resilient as we go forward, then we're missing an opportunity. Yeah. So, Matt, I want to tease out, you made uh, many uh, really important points in terms of how one should think about party risk management and how do you enhance that practice. I want to tease out a couple. Sure. One, you made a you made a really important point. I mean, it's the really reason why I founded Supply Wisdom, which is, hey, you have to think full spectrum, right? You can't just be fixated on financial risk and cyber risk. I want, and then I, I actually want you to comment when I finish the second one. So that's one. I think it's a really important point that we should reinforce more. Second is you talked about what I would call um, data integrity. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm constantly surprised by how many customers are recently coming to us and asking us to understand their concentration risk. And the mm -hmm. first question we ask is, well, give us a target profile that shows what locations you're getting your services from, and we can put it together for you, right? Yeah. Talk to me about those two and advice for companies around those two points. Well, concentration risk, first of all, is one of those things that, um, you know, crawl before you start to walk and run. That's the, you know, it's a great thing to say, like, we're going to focus on it. But if you don't really have a good relationship with your business to understand where concentration risk is, is actually a risk, then, then you're just, you know, chasing a red herring to, to an extent. 
Um, I think concentration risk is complex because there's different facets of concentration risk, right? You could have a third party that could be a concentration risk to you directly. You could be a concentration risk to them and, you know, it could kind of go the other way. It could be a uh, it could be a risk that, that is more broad um, in, in general. It could be a risk that's just specific to an individual business and you need to manage the appetites specifically for that business. Um, you know, so, so that the concentration risk topic, I think if you really peeled it out, and I can't remember who wrote a paper on it, uh, it might have been ISACA or someone else a couple of years ago, but I think they had five different aspects of what concentration risk actually was. And after they defined it, the statement was kind of like, what are you looking to accomplish? Yeah. <laughs> Is it de-risking resiliency? Is it, you know, de-risking dependency? Um, when you look at concentration risk in a financial services organization versus a consumer products manufacturing organization versus an energy you know, organization, they may be looked at completely differently. Um, you know, we all know that in manufacturing, there's a lot of redundancy baked into supply chain. Yeah. You know, they might have four vendors providing mint, you know, and that's just, you know, that's just what they have naturally. Um, you know, maybe with better risk management, could it be two? Uh, who knows? Um, but, but looking back and saying, what are you trying to accomplish when you, when you attack concentration risk? And what are the measures of success relative to that? Because risk managers are going to try to push businesses to say, well, you can't use that third party because we already use them way too much. Um, but without offering an alternative, it makes it really difficult to try and have that collaborative back and forth with the business because, you know, they're, they're looking to, to drive revenue and they're looking to meet customer expectations and they're not really looking to, to focus on concentration risk as a primary principle of, of their decision-making. Yeah, I think you, the other thing you highlighted, Matt, is you've got to clearly understand uh, your third party, what they're doing for you. You know, even you used a great example of, you know, you they may have access to data that was, that was imagined in a first contract, but what's happening two years later is totally different. So the other aspect I would love for you to talk about is, you know, the, the way the industry has often been is these point in time risk assessments. Yep. Right. Let's talk about how that practice needs to change and the benefit it can bring. Well, the unfortunate truth is that I don't think there's a single outage, breach, incident, or issue that's been caught while you're actually conducting the assessment for that point in time, right? It's always <laughs> something happens and then we look back and we go, well, who did the assessment? And then, you know, there, there's, oh, well, there's these eight issues that no one figured out how to fix. And, you know, one of them was the underlying reason for that. Super easy to play Monday morning quarterback, super easy to go back and point at it and say like, why didn't we do this? Yeah. Um, the, the challenge is more, how do we get more, active and open dialogue with those third parties and how do we make it meaningful in real time um because just sending the same questionnaire with the same answers and the same you know activity over and over and over again expecting different results that's the definition of insanity right and i'm not discounting questionnaires there's a time and a place certainly yeah yeah a new relationship maybe once every three years maybe you're just forced to do it for those 30 enterprise critical because that's just the right thing to do i get it yeah. Um, but making sure that you're leaning into data and, and obviously supply wisdom has a wealth of it, 
and using it as points to identify where changes occur and where discussions need to be had. I would much rather have a relationship with a customer where four times within the year, I see degradation in some of the risk data and I pull up and I have the discussion yep. and nothing actually be an issue than to not have that data at all and be blinded to it so that when an issue occurs, and I, I could have looked back at data and said, I saw stress here. That was a primary factor. I should have had the discussion. If nothing else, it makes you a lot more resilient in reacting to it because you've yep. developed the rapport, you've developed the relationship. Um, you know, when, when I talk about resiliency, um, Mike Tyson famously said, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face or punched in the mouth, however you want to say the quote. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but resiliency is a, a, it's a muscle. It's not, it's not just a thing like we have controls and we're resilient. You have to be resilient. You have to act resilient. Um, and in doing that, it requires you to have those discussions with those third parties. I mean, if the only time you talk to third parties, and I, I mean you as an entire organization, not just the risk professionals, yeah. but if the only time you talk to them is during the assessment, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, they're delivering services, they're, they're part of your ecosystem, uh, at a bare minimum, you know, six months, you should be pulling up and saying, you know, how's the health of the relationship? Yeah. Any things that I should be aware of that we need to discuss or, oh, by the way, we saw these things occur. And, and I think they're, they're you know, worth digging into. Yeah, Matt, I, I think of this as, you know, just think about the discipline of how people management, talent management changed from one time annual reviews to now, ongoing reviews, right? You think about how everything in business is moving to real time and continuous. Well, you're, you're touching on my favorite uh, comparison. You know, we run third party risk as if we fire every employee at the end of the year and then we right. <laughs> in January. Like, that's not how the world works. That's not how business works. Right. Yeah. And, and we also don't run um, we don't run performance as we run interviews. Right. Yeah. Why? Well, because you have data that shows how they performed. Right. Yep. When you're running interviews, which is basically due diligence for people. Yeah. You're, you're looking to get an understanding of are there risks present here that would prevent me into entering into this relationship? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the ongoing monitoring is, is this relationship panning out the way that I felt it would? And are there any other continual risk factors that are entering into the relationship? I mean, think of think of any risk data that you're going to pick up. Um, relative to a location issue or relative to a geopolitical issue, you know, that's very similar to seeing like a performance issue, um, you know, on, on someone that, that's an employee. Um, they're very similar examples. So, you know, you're, you're spot on with the ability to get access into data, to see things in real time. Um, be okay with some of the false positives. That That's fine. I, yeah. You know, I mean, Hey, you, we, we have to recognize that when we get massive amounts of data, there is going to be some level of false positives, but sure. it's better than what it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, um, one of the areas I wanted you to talk about is AI and particularly uh, how should third-party risk leaders think about the applications, the partners that they're using that bring AI as part of their service solution? Uh, it, so massively um, interesting question, because I think if we saw the acceleration of AI that's happened in the last, what, three months? Yeah. <laughs> it's significant. The acceleration of potential regulatory requirements around, you know, safe use of AI um, is significant. Um, 
you know, we, we, we look at a few different AI models because there's basically two or three different AI models that kind of are, are ruling the roost right now. Um, and one of them with open AI used to be, you know, a free kind of ability for anyone and Microsoft pretty much has control over that uh, as of right now. But um, you start to look at, at the AI models and, and people start to play with them and say, oh, they, they can write my research paper for me or they can you know, write a poem or, you know, we have AI now that can, that can create pictures that look almost real. Um, they can do video. Uh, they can they can uh, interpret someone's voice so that who knows maybe what we're doing right now fully AI you know <laughs> the use of AI and the models I think we're going to see something that's probably ten times the size of the scrutiny that we saw in financial services around model risk yeah um, the the use the security of the data the assumptions the training uh, the underlying activity I think. There, there's two main buckets of concern for me. One is just effective use of models and AI models and, and, and AI that can be reliable in general, because, you know, as, as the models tend to learn, you're going to start to understand where they differentiate from that safe level of, you know, of activity. Um, when you look at a broader spectrum perspective, you know, the, the biggest challenge, I think, is, is AI that has the ability to almost run itself. Yeah. Um, so like we talk about risk I, I know um elon musk was giving you know some some interviews more recently across a number of different channels and talking about you know imagine an ai being able to change administrative passwords and, and being able to you know to, to kind of run itself i mean we saw some rare, really interesting things with chat gpt3 yeah you know where people were manipulating chat gpt based on certain types of commands and you put this stuff into the broader marketplace, people are going to try to break it. I mean, yeah. that's just that's just the inherent nature of what people yeah. are doing. To um, so, I, I think there's massive uplift. I think there's there is some some significant concern from a risk standpoint. I think if used in the right ways, yeah. um, I think it takes tedious non-value activities out of the equation and it positions people to focus on value. Yeah. Um, I really hope it doesn't dumb down people because there's this aspect of deductive reasoning, you know, you, you spoke earlier about the layers, right? Yeah. Being able to assess and analyze a situation and being able to come out with your independent thoughts on why it occurred, how it occurred, how to solve for it, how to prevent it from happening in the future. You know, that's the core to risk management capabilities. And if AI is going to remove that early stage understanding of, you know, that, that analysis, then it puts us in a pretty scary situation a decade or two decades from now where that sense of capability is just never learned. Yeah, I mean, yeah. how many people here know how to build an iPhone? Yeah. Yeah. Not many people, right? <laughs> we all love the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, I just hope that's not the same case with AI where, where some of those basic natural capabilities that, that really, you know, keep us true in debate and, and uh, you know, that gray area of risk management uh, doesn't go away. Yeah. So Matt, we, I think we reinforced certain messages very clearly, right? We kind of started with, hey, if you're looking at great third-party risk management and particularly resilience, I think that's the other thing that stands out is like, we no longer just talk about risk management, it's risk yeah. management and resilience is radical transparency, right? Number one. Number two, we talk about the benefits of information, intelligence that's continuous in real time. 
The third piece, Matt, that I do want you to comment on is, you know, all of this is not possible without great systems. Mm -hmm. And then the ability to leverage those systems to automate actions and others. Talk to us about what platforms like OneTrust are able to do for customers to take advantage of the other things we just talked about. Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I know people in tech don't like when I say this, but technology doesn't solve problems <laughs> by itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in in badly configured technology can actually accelerate problems and exacerbate problems. Um, you think of any organization where you think of a system that you were using, and you're like, wow, this is really difficult. It used to be really easy. So there, there's a, a, a sense of caution there relative to that. Um, but but I think when, when you truly understand what you're trying to accomplish from a use case perspective, when you understand, you know, cycle time reduction, um, instead of 17 clicks being able to do something in two clicks and being able to leverage you know models or algorithms or automation uh, to be able to make things uh, a bit more uh, user friendly uh, you know we look at technology as making sure that it's enabling the user experience um, you know I came from a background where not only do I advise and build third-party risk programs for some of the largest organizations on the planet um, but I also ran them so you know when we ran them, if our technology didn't work for us, you know, we'd rebuild it. And, and we've certainly rebuilt existing technology um, and partner technology um, that we used. And I, I think that experience kind of coming into one trust and the ability to say, does the system actually enable people to, to make their day-to-day their -day jobs more efficient? Do they have the visibility into risk that they need? Do they understand the expectations from a workflow and, and a queuing perspective? Um, is it hard to get to things? Is it easy to get to things? Um, I, we talk about uh, a lot of uh, use cases in tech and, and I know in tech demos, you could put a use case down and we'll figure out how to make it make it work. Yeah. Uh, my question is always, should you be doing that? Um, and trying to question, are, are you trying to do that because that's the way it's always been done? Are you trying to do that because there's a requirement that you have to meet? Um, in some cases, there's history with internal audit where they say, you know what, no one likes this, but we have to do it like this. The other thing I would say is that tech evolves constantly. And any build and deployment that you've done, uh, say, two or three years ago, there's capabilities within those systems that are far superior than they were three years ago. And sometimes it may require you to kind of take steps backward to rebuild, to go forward. And just the recognition of that, I think, is uh, is very interesting because I talk to a lot of clients on on daily basis where, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about one trust and our capabilities. I'm more concerned about is, is our technology meeting your needs, solving your problems, addressing your use cases? Yeah. Um, is it is it creating pain in the process? Is it creating efficiency in the process? How do you measure that? Um, what success look like? Because I certainly don't want to be in a situation where we you know sold the world to someone and then six months later we come back and they said cycle times are double what they were. You know we don't really know what we're doing relative to this and 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 we're having challenges and problems. Uh, we want to make sure that that um, you know it's a solution. Um, so technology enables process, and, and sometimes the underlying of that is making sure that the process is sound and fit for purpose to enable it with technology, as opposed to taking a broken process and accelerating that broken process with technology. Yeah, Matt, I also like to always remind people, um, you know, great companies like ours don't want clients just to be on the receiving end. We want you to be on the on the end in terms of engage with yeah. us, participate with us. 
because that's how our next set of innovations, our next set of improvements come from, right? So we want to meet your needs. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we get feedback from clients all the time. Um, I, I wish I could treat every single piece of feedback. You know, we get thousands of them um, uh, with the, the same level of scrutiny. But just like in risk management, we have to pick and choose. Yeah. You know, if, if I have 50 customers coming back and saying this certain process needs to be fixed, I'm probably going to fix it as opposed to if two people came back and said, I need this yeah. to be fixed. Yeah. Um, I think also, to your point, engaging people in very open dialogue and saying, you know what? Put everything on the table, good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, we'll work through that. And having those open dialogues and discussions, because, um, you know, if we're not willing to see some of the challenges that our clients are facing, then they're never going to get solved. Yeah. Uh, I always tell the people that work for me, if I don't know the challenges you're dealing with, I can't help you solve them. Yeah. Uh, that same holds, holds true for clients as well. Let's switch to jobs and careers and risk. 